A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by OU's Teach Coalition, encouraging everyone to go out and vote in the coming upcoming Midterms elections next week, November 8th, 2022. Midterms governor elections. The elections will be close in all states. So please, uh, it's being encouraged to go out and vote. The OU's Teach Coalition and its network of thousands of activists, just like you, are urging you to go out and vote. And uh, the next few episodes, I'm going to be examining this Jewish story of pushing frontiers uh, on the American landscape. Um, both the religious Jews and the general Jewish population, different angles, different aspects. And the United States was the first country in history which did not have to grant emancipation to its Jewish citizens. Uh, since Jews were white and half of them were male, they were automatically considered citizens from the country's inception. So the U.S. Jews never had to lobby for emancipation. It was their right from the outset. So utilizing that right by going and voting should go without saying when one considers the long history of the Jewish people um, in the country and the voice which voting gives to the wider community and the ability to address its needs. And, uh, and uh, that should be you know, self-evident to a certain extent. But it's not enough for the community of the large community, granted, of uh, Jewish History Soundbites listeners. Um, it's not enough for them to vote. It's also important for everyone to encourage others as well uh, within everyone's social circles and communities to raise awareness and to uh, appreciate the history and the responsibility. And it's not important uh, who one votes for. It's important just to go ahead and vote. The voting trends are seen, not who gets into the office is less important. Um, It's more the idea of going out and being active and active on behalf of one's individual needs as well as the wider community. For help, contact the voter hotline at 646-459-5162. And you can also see, uh, see, see more about it online at teachcoalition.org slash vote. So that um, is definitely an important message. And today we're going to examine one aspect of this, uh, one angle of 
uh, the Jewish American story of Jews in the Wild West, Jews uh, migrating west during the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and uh, the next few will will uh, you know further examine different angles as well. Um, and each one is a different nuance and uh, um, of of integration of the Jewish story and the challenges and the successes and uh, and it's uh, the collectively it's good to understand where we come from so we know where we're going. So if we look back to the 19th century, if we take excuse me take a screenshot at the year 1830, for instance, 1825, 1830, around that time. So there's about 5,000 Jews in the United States. Um, mostly uh, Jews of Sephardic descent, uh, who came during the colonial era and established congregations. And that's and very, very small. 5,000 spread out across the country, primarily New York City, Philadelphia, Boston, Charleston, a couple other places down south. And then begins this immigration from Germany, from again, it was those days of the German Confederation, it wasn't a united Germany, from the German-speaking lands, mostly from Bavaria, but, but from other parts of Germany as well, um, and uh, due to different economic changes and economic opportunity in the United States, and also due to um, persecution, there's different laws that were implemented in Bavaria and other German states at this time, which restricted Jewish life, and there was this anticipation of emancipation following the Napoleonic Wars and the spirit of liberalism that was presumably sweeping across Europe, and in the reactionary uh, decades following Napoleon's defeat, so there was a lot of uh, disappointment among the Jews of Central Europe and the German lands that, uh, that they almost had it and it didn't arrive, so there was a much migration during this time. Some of the migration was internally in Europe, and they went. many German Jews from Bavaria and those areas moved to uh, Hungary at the time. That's the rise of Oberlan, the Chassam Seifer, which we've been discussing in a different series. But many of them moved to the United States, so much so that by the year 1880, which is on the cusp of the Great Immigration from Eastern Europe, not from Germany, um, 1881, of course, is the beginning of the Great Immigration. So before that, talking about just the German-Jewish uh, immigration, is a half a century. From 1830 to 1880, the American Jewish population goes from 5,000 to 250,000. So that's a, an incredible growth. It, it's, it spikes, uh, you know, this for... for Literally over two centuries, from the early 1600s, when the first Jews arrive in what's then its colonies, what's going to be the United States eventually, the the community remains very very static. It's a thousand Jews, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand, right? For two centuries, and then in a mere half a century, in fifty years, it goes from five thousand to two hundred and fifty thousand. Incredible. Uh, growth, of course, it will pale in comparison to the Great Immigration. But we're not talking about the Great Immigration. We're talking about what the Jewish community likes in mid-century, and these are German Jews, and many of them um, have already been exposed to reform, to integration, even to assimilation, secularism, and uh, therefore, for the most part, 
these German Jews, there are traditional elements, there are even Orthodox elements, and there are Orthodox communities that spring up, but for the most part there's a very rapid integration, assimilation, secularization that takes place. Uh, in this context, Reform Judaism would even be considered a, you know, like the the religious ones almost. Uh, you know, many of them uh, completely assimilated. Intermarriage in mid-19th century was very high, surprisingly, uh, from this immigration. It was quite, quite high. Um, and they settle again in the, primarily in the cities on the eastern seaboard, in Baltimore, and in New York, in Philadelphia, and other places, Cincinnati, and other places, but they some of them make it west, and that's that's what we're going to focus on: Jews in the West this time. Um, so there's this internal migration, and the reason for it at this stage, of course, this eventually changes as the century wears on. But in the early earlier decades, around the time of the Civil War, um, there's it's it's economic. This is the frontier. This is this is this is the general spirit of American life in general. And Jews are just following that trend. There's the the frontiers, the territories, the um, all the incredible real estate opportunity, economic opportunity of the West of of the of of mining. Right? There's the gold that's discovered in California and gold and silver that's discovered in many areas, mine towns, boom towns, uh, all over the American West. This is manifest destiny. This is when the American West is is um, flourishing, where the American government is encouraging settlement, and Jews are following that trend. And several thousand of these German Jews are are among the many who who head west during these decades. Um, as as uh, first to first, what many very often the pioneers are peddlers. Again, these German Jews are primarily looking for economic opportunity. And they're buying merchandise in the westernmost cities, such as St. Louis. And then they go and peddle it across the frontier, across the territories uh, out in the west. Um, and they replenish their supplies, and they build themselves up that way. And sometimes they settle down and they become merchants. And some of the more successful ones... They're starting the first major, um, you know, hardware stores, grocery stores, textiles, clothing in the mining industry, or even banking. Um, and um, you know, this, this is the it's these decades that eventually people who would go on to found the Wall Street investment banks of Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers, the defunct Lehman Brothers and others. They start off as German Jews who are peddlers, who are simple merchants, and they during this time, and eventually they emerge as uh, and they build themselves up. And there's a lot of rags to riches stories uh, uh, during that era uh, of these immigrant Jews. As the century wears on, and eventually the Eastern European immigration arrives, so there's a new Western migration. That's this time. It's it's somewhat of this social engineering. In other words, the first wave, when it was German Jews, was rather natural. And then there's this this um, social engineering, so to speak, that's by people like Baron uh, Moritz de Hirsch, um, and even more so by Jacob Schiff, the great philanthropist and leader of American Jewry, 
who through the Galveston plan, which I discussed on the city episode of Houston way back, of opening the port of Galveston to encourage Eastern European Jews to come through that port, and also through the opening of Jacob Schiff opened the IRO, the Industrial Removal Office, which encouraged Jews from the crowded tenements of the Lower East Side and other other uh, places in the east, in the east, in the, in the eastern seaboard, to to get jobs in in the interior, into into essentially what was west of the United States, and to help them facilitate that, they would find jobs for them and try to help them out. And by the way, the archives of the IRO, which all exist today, and the thousands and thousands of letters they received from Jews who had been sent out are an incredible historical resource because they describe the struggles of immigrant Jewish life in all these places. Um, sometimes it's tragic and sometimes it's humorous, uh, more often tragic, but um, the IRO eventually has uh, nearly 100,000 Jews who um, who are moving west as a result. So by the, by the time World War I arrives, I would say that there's you know, about a, probably well over 100,000 Jews living in the West. So, um, which is a significant number. Of course, it pales in insignificance when you consider the millions of Jews living in the United States, mostly in New York City at the time, but still it's a, it's a significant number. Of course, highest, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society also plays a role as well. Um, and so there's this uh, move to move Jews out of, immigrant Jews out of the struggling neighborhoods in New York and other places to go explore the West. Now, that's the beginning and end of it, kind of. The German Jews coming from the 1830s and on, all the way to World War One and, and even into the 1920s, where there's this uh, movement to try to guide Eastern European Jews West. But if we take a important moment in that, in the, towards the beginning of it, we'll look at the California Gold Rush, 1849. Um, Jews moved to the Pacific Northwest, the mining towns, they moved to Oregon and Washington, Seattle, not only to California, but especially to San Francisco. And uh, at that time, even at this early time, it's not exclusively German Jews. Um, and here, one of the most interesting stories is Levi Strauss, uh, Levi Strauss is this German Jew who arrives there at uh, at this early time, and he um, he uh, comes there as a peddler, as a small businessman, and he he's born in in New York. Um, he uh, I'm sorry, in Germany. He's actually born in Germany itself. Um, and he migrates to the United States in, at the age of 18. So he's born in Bavaria, and he immigrates um, with his family um, at the age of 18 to the United States, where they settle in New York, right? That's, that's they, in, in Manhattan, and he starts a business and um, as a peddler. And eventually, he uh, follows the San Francisco Gold Rush, and they open a branch of their dry goods business in San Francisco. Um, so he arrives there in 1854, so it's a couple of years after the gold rush begins. He starts a wholesale business, Levi Strauss and, and Co., and he imports uh, from the East Coast, from his brother's uh, store in, in New York, uh, clothing and, and textiles, and, he, and then he starts to cater 
products specifically for the miners, instead of just the standard New York clothing that he's receiving. He starts to make tents, um, and then he starts to make jeans. And he's the first, Levi's, Levi's jeans, he's the first one to do that. It's his invention, essentially, together with another, uh, another Jew named Jacob Davis. Um, and he invents, uh, riv- the, it puts the rivets on, those, on, the, on the pants uh, to make it more secure. And talking about miners who are sitting among the rocks and, and stones and rough conditions, and their pants were wearing out. And here he had a stronger material, more comfortable. They wouldn't rip at the seams. And they produced these blue jeans, which were very popular with the miners in San Francisco. And they patented in 1873, um, and that be- makes him a wealthy individual, incredibly wealthy. He becomes he, Levi Strauss, as many Reform Jews are members of Reform, and he est- helps establish the Reform Congregation Emmanuel in uh, San Francisco, which is the first Jewish temple or place of prayer of any kind in uh, in San Francisco. So he becomes a leader of the Jewish community out in California and one of the wealthiest ones. And he's, he's, he's the, 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 you know, the big success story of Jews out West. But um, when we think of the West, we think of very often the Wild West. That's what comes to mind usually. And, uh, you know, a guy making jeans by the California Gold Rush doesn't really bring those, those connotations. So, they're, they're, they're the Jews in California. That's one type of Jews in the West. But then there are the Jews in the boom towns, on the frontier. There are Jews as cowboys. Um, there are Jews as miners. And one of the strangest stories of all, which is you know, un, quite reflective, unfortunately, of, of Jewish secularization at this time, is one of the most famous figures of the American West, legendary figures, is Wyatt Earp. And uh, he, he, of course, is this gunman, this gun, gunslinger, uh, gambler, officially law enforcement, but he might have been a bit of an outlaw himself. And he's, he's uh, you know, he's, he's, he's like this hero, this legendary um, guy of, 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 of who kind of defines the whole idea of the sheriff and the, the, the uh, shootouts of the of the Wild West at that time, and he's someone who moved around many times. Of course, it's a, a story in itself, not a Jewish one. But the, what is makes it Jewish is that he had a Jewish wife, Josephine Marcus, and she's born in New York City in 1861 to a family of German-Jewish immigrants from the Poznan. Today it's Polish, it's Poznan, but then it was German, it was called Posen area, where Rabbi Akiva Eger had been the rabbi, um, and from that area, they immigrate to the United States, and they're in a secular, assimilated family. They, they, um, she, she never had any connection to Jewish religion, but she was definitely a German Jewish from a German Jewish family. The parents moved from New York to San Francisco, and she's a child. She's a bit of a strange and mysterious character, but eventually makes it to the town of Tombstone, Arizona, and. You know, with a name like that, Tombstone, it's almost like a Jewish town because it sounds like it's full of Kvarim. Um, and, but uh, that's where the story of Wyatt Earp takes place. Part of his story is also in Deadwood, North Dakota, and many other places, and his later years are in California. But um, 
eventually, White Earps, uh, she, she's his wife, his common-law wife, not an official wife, for nearly half a century. Both lived a very long life. Um, so he, in, in Tombstone, there's, he, he, has, he has this, uh, White Earp has this famous shootout at the OK Corral with a bunch of outlaws who call themselves the Cowboys. Now these outlaws, the Cowboys, uh, they used to cross the nearby Mexican border and steal, you know, horses and cattle and whatever they whatever they needed to steal, or or I don't know, maybe it was even mining stuff. Uh, and um, and the Mexican border guards weren't excited about that, so they started enforcing the border and closing it and having more guards there at the border. So the cowboys had to steal from local Americans. And that was, uh, that, that became an issue. And that's what led to this shootout. And she's, she being married to Wyatt Earp is, is part of that. And there was an anti-Semitic slur later on said to, 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 to Wyatt Earp about his wife, about his Jewish wife. Um, and eventually that's what even separated uh, Wyatt Earp and his best friend, Doc Holliday, uh, from, from, uh, from, his, from, uh, from Earp. Uh, because he made fun of his friend that he's like a you know a, a Jew boy and because he's married to a Jew, um, so there's this dynamic of the Jewishness even though she's a completely secular Jew. She's born in America and her parents were German Jews, also secular, but the reality out on the frontier is that the it was Jewish. But it, it's uh, um, funny that um, that unrelated, but funny that. These uh, American cowboy outlaws were crossing the Mexican border to steal, to commit crimes. And in order to keep these Americans out, the Mexican border guards had to enforce the border um, to keep these American criminals from jumping across the border. So that I find to be quite interesting as well and a bit ironic. And either in, in any event, um, Earp becomes a mythical legend of the Wild West. And um, and and books and movies and everything's been made about him, but where is he himself? In a Jewish cemetery in California, um, his wife, who outlives him, buries him in this Jewish cemetery. And she, again, even though she's intermarried and secular and assimilated, she and her non-Jewish husband are buried in this Jewish cemetery. In, in California, intermarriage at that time was considered quite accepted among the Jews living out west. So that's, I find to be a fascinating story. On one hand, a tragedy of American Jewish life and intermarriage, and then they're completely lost to, uh, to Jewish history. But on the other hand, it's this very, very famous American individual who's part of American history in the Wild West, and he's buried. He has. He's married to a Jew. Who's accepted somewhat, even though he sustained, like I said, anti-Semitic slurs. But also that he's buried in a Jewish cemetery, which is so odd. Um, in it, in moving on, you had um, later on as Polish, as Russian Polish Jews move out to the West as well. You have uh, Jesse Schwader, um, who is the the uh, the founder of the Samsonite luggage um, empire. He also lived out in Colorado, um, in the West. And he had business magnates. He had politicians. Uh, the first, some of the first Jewish politicians were actually in the West, not in places like New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, um, because uh, they quickly rose to prominence in Utah. The first non, 
uh, Mormon governor of Utah was a Jew. Um, the mayors of San Francisco, mayors of Deadwood, of, of, of these real Wild West towns, uh, sometimes were Jews. Um, so fascinating. There's actually a documentary recently made uh, um, of, of uh, Jews in the Wild West uh, about this story, which is quite interesting. Um, so the 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 um, the as they're integrating, they're the and and secular, you know, the secularization of these of these Jews as well. Um, they but many of them are forming congregations. Most of them reform. Some of them even Orthodox. Uh, there was in 1852, uh, Sheirith Israel was formed in San Francisco. Sorry, the congregation uh, was formed in 1849, the year of the uh, the um, the gold rush itself. Um, and then in 1852, they were able to build their own building, and they were a strictly Orthodox congregation. They had 110 members, and they were from Norman Northern Europe and England. Um, congregation Emmanuel, which I mentioned earlier, was actually later. I think I mistakenly said that it was uh, earlier before. So the Reform Congregation comes later uh, than the Orthodox one. It only opens in 1854. Um, but again, there's uh, it's developing at this time. There's over 30 Jewish mayors in the late 1800s in, in, the, in the West. Um, and governors uh, and, and congressmen. The first congresswoman, Jewish congresswoman in the United States was Florence Kahn. She was in California um, in the... Uh, in 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 the in the in the eighteen hundreds, um, and 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 there's many other examples as well. So the Jews have a presence there, and the Jewish communities there are somewhat descendants of it till today. Even though most of the one the original ones assimilated, intermarried, and were lost, but this was the first attempt at immigration at at integration. Excuse me, beyond the confines of the urban centers in the East, and it's. Quite an interesting American story. In further episodes that we'll discuss in the coming week, we'll have a, try to have a few in succession. We'll talk about different aspects. We'll talk about the immigration from Eastern Europe. We'll talk about the attempts of the Orthodox establishment to form rabbinical organizations to consolidate Orthodox Jewish life at the turn of the century. And we'll try to examine other aspects of American Jewish integration as well. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to go ahead and vote. Teach Coalition uh, of the OU is reminding everyone to go ahead and vote next week uh, at the elections on November 8th. And uh, this is Yehuda Geber, and I hope you enjoyed.